0: You're listening to a sermon by Pastor Joel Kim of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Well, good morning, New Life. It's a delight for me to be joining you this morning and bringing God's Word. I want to begin by bringing greetings and thanks from Westminster Seminary, California, especially the staff and faculty. We're grateful For your prayers, your remembrances, and your support for our institution. Thank you very, very much. This morning, as we turn to the word, we're turning to Psalm 136, verses 1 through 3, and verse 26. We'll cover the whole psalm, but for sake of time and our focus, we'll focus on those four four verses this morning. Psalm 136, verses 1 through 3, and verse 26. Would you stand in reverence before his name as we read God's word? For here now is the word of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 26, give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. That's the reading of his word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father, draw near to us this morning. We need you. We desire your wisdom, your guidance, your comfort, and your support. Come to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Renew our love for you. Refresh us, O Lord, in our strength, for many of us are weak. We pray that you open our eyes for us to not only understand your word, but your powerful hand and fingerprints all over our lives each and every single day. For we pray these things in the matchless name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We gathered yesterday morning to actually clean up our institution. Many families came number of our faculty members, as well as a number of New Life members were there, helping us to clean the campus. There's this one young lady, a girl who was there, and when I saw her for the first time, I asked her, how old are you? And her reply to me was, I am six and a half, with the emphasis on the half. I am six and a half. When we're young, we think in months like almost seven-year-old girl that I met yesterday morning. When we graduate to thinking in years like a teen, we say things like years ago, and you find out from your kid it was only two or three years ago, but it felt like it was a long, long time ago. And when you get to be my age, you think in decades. I'm not sure how many times I've actually said when I was in my 20s, which was many, many years ago, Aging provides us with perspective and lovers of history, value, lessons learned, and wisdom gained over time. But if much wisdom can be gained by thinking about years and decades, just imagine what the psalmist does with centuries and millennia, which is what he does in the text this morning. And I do hope that as we spend some time together hovering over this text, we will agree on one thing. The good God is faithful. And worthy of our thanks. The good God is faithful and worthy of our thanks. The psalmist sets out with his main point in verse 1. When he begins by saying, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Perhaps you remember the story of the rich young man from Mark chapter 10. He approached Jesus and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus's answer, which is technically his non-answer, you might have noticed that whenever somebody asks a question, Jesus never actually answers. He often throws back a question, question unrelated to the question being asked. Because what he wants to do is to direct our attention to the core issue, not the issues of our hearts that we bring to God. And Jesus answered by saying, Why do you call me good? He says. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why is God good? We could perhaps ask. And Psalmist this morning explains by a brief overview of history. In this case, a human History. We didn't actually read all the verses here, but to summarize it for us, we realize that there's a theological history involved. Many of us struggle with modern arrogance, thinking that everything that mattered happened last year or perhaps last decade or in our lifetime. But the psalmist is thinking big. He's thinking from the beginning of time all the way to our present and including the future that you and I cannot actually see. He talks about creation. God made, he says in verse 5, the heavens. Verse 6, the earth. The great lights in verse 7. The sun, verse 8. And the moon and the stars. He recounts the Lord's salvation and redemption in Exodus. When God struck down the firstborn of Egypt, verse 10. Brought Israel out in verse 11. Divided the Red Sea in verse 10. Brought, uh, uh, divided the Red Sea and made Israel pass through the midst of it, verse 13. And overthrew Pharaoh And his army, verse 14. He remembers many other oppositions for God's people. He remembers the great kings in verse 17, the mighty kings in verse 18, the king of the Amorites in verse 19, and the king of Bashan in verse 20, who were no match for the God of gods, as recorded for us in verse 2, and the Lord of lords, verse 3. He took their lands and gave them to his people, verse 21. It's quick, isn't it? Verses 4 through 25, recounting all of history, where we see God's hand at work, God's action being involved. He's not distant. He's not forsaking. He is involved in every single aspect and moment in the lives of human history, his people, you and I. And what do we see when we recount and understand this history? We cannot help but to say his steadfast love for his people endures forever. That's the point he wants to get across in that history. This is not because life has been is easy. You and I know that quite well. It's worth noting that the psalmist mentions the Pharaoh and the Egyptians because that was the greatest moment in Israel's history in terms of their travails and difficulties. And it goes on to further talk about the many who oppose the people of God. But perhaps the most striking is the psalm that follows 136. you six. You'll be amazed that I I know how to count well, and the psalm after 136 is 137. And in that psalm, you'll see one of the most poignant and sad psalms you've ever read, and it's one of the most difficult ones as well. There is some scholarly debate in terms of what to do with psalms. There are those who argue that the individual Psalms are randomly selected, and just because one Psalm is next to another, you don't actually read them together. They're separated. There are other scholars who argue that they are actually intentional, that you have to read Psalm 136 directly followed by 137, because they're meant to be together I count myself once someone who belongs to the latter camp, and 137 is vital to our understanding of 136. Psalm 137 recounts the people of God as prisoners of war, being driven away from their home by their captors and tormentors. As they walk, they're sad, they're tired, they're overwhelmed, and they, as they sit, And they lament the losses that they've experienced. Mockingly, their captors taunt the people of God and they tell them, they command them to sing a song. A sing of song of happiness, they say, by saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. You know that the people of God sing and they sing a lot. We see a lot of those in the book of Psalms, but yet they weren't in the mood. Their home was lost. They were away from their homeland. It almost felt like God forsook them. And here they are being told by their enemies to sing a song of joy. And their response is simply, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They say. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? It's haunting. The way they ask it it almost feels like we can actually echo the sentiments of those words, because oftentimes in between the Lord's first coming and his eventual second coming, it seems like dry and barren land that oppositions overwhelm and we walk with difficulty and with a limp each and every single day. And when told to sing a song of joy, we cannot help but to say, how do we sing the Lord's song in the midst of this? How do we sing the Lord's song when we cannot hear, taste, or experience the presence of the Lord? What's amazing is that this 137, I'm going to amaze you again, is followed by 138. It's amazing how they follow one another this way. And 136 and 138... Covering this very stark and depressing psalm of 137, repeat the same refrain when it says in 138, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Lord, your steadfast love endures forever. The Lord's steadfast love promised envelops 137 where the lament overflows. Friends, God is good. Because his love is steadfast, unrelenting, furious, and never quits. And this is what the people of God are beginning to see in the book of Psalms. We have an interesting story here because even if you forget everything else that's being said, the psalmist makes sure you remember this. His steadfast love endures forever Children, you might remember that your parents love to repeat the same thing over and over again. For many of you, it might be just simply no. Others of you, there may be commands that follow. And you may wonder, why do they say the same thing over and over again? It's because you don't listen. And the thought is, if you say it the second time, you might hear. The third time, you might hear it more. A fourth time, it might stick. Usually doesn't. But the psalmist here repeats it 26 times he uh, repeats the refrain. This repeated refrain, seemingly unending for us this morning, structurally reinforces the main point. God's love has no end. His steadfast love endures forever. That phrase seems simple enough. And perhaps you've heard, I know you've heard, that the original behind the translation steadfast love is the word hesed. Pastor Ted mentions it often. It's much more rich than the translations are able to provide for us. This explains the remarkable variety in English translations. And all of them are right in some way because they show aspects of the meaning of this word when it says, in the ESV, his steadfast love, NIV, his love, NAS, his loving kindness. A New Living Translation, his faithful love, King James Version, his mercy, and my favorite, the NET says, his loyal love. These are all translations, right in their own way, giving us glimpses or slices of the meaning here of steadfast love. For you see, translation and translating is remarkably difficult, as many of you who are bilingual or perhaps trilingual know. Trans- translations involve transferring the meaning of the word, the implication of the phrase and sentence, and the impact of the sentence to an audience who are unfamiliar with the history, the context, and the culture of the original speaker or the author. Thus, a famous Italian pro- proverb sim- simply said, traitor, translator, or to put it another way, translation is treason. Because it doesn't fully convey the meaning of the word. Let me give you an example. I, my background is Korean American. I was born and raised in Korea, where for the first 10 years of my life, I was attending grade school there. And for those who know this well, the education as well as the cultural context is quite a bit different. Education is different in the sense that you have 65 to 70 kids in class and they all move together in many ways in terms of teaching the students. They clean their own rooms and classrooms. Just imagine that. After class, each student has to clean their space and their hallway. Now, apart from those kind of changes, one of the unique things about Korea is it's a divided country. You know that well, and it has a history of being conquered. By others. And as a divided country, we still sang a song that simply translates My only hope in life is reunification. <laughs> Those are the songs that we used to sing, carrying the burden of many people who live in a divided country. My parents, born in the present North Korea, that is, they weren't North Korea when they were born, it was united. But in present day North Korea, often spoke of returning home one day being back where they were born and raised, no longer to be reached at this point. To explain the emotions that Koreans feel, often the word used is han, han. You might have even heard about it. It implies heartburnings, ill feeling, anguish, regret, unsatisfied longing, leading to a state of sadness and melancholy. A country seemingly perpetually conquered and divided, Han often represented the sense that can't be described in one word, the feelings that many carried for themselves. This is how difficult sometimes the translations are, because even if you were to translate it word for word, you don't get the full meaning of that word. Well, friends, the word that is used for steadfast love in this refrain means covenant love or the favor God shows to those with whom he has entered into a promised relationship. It is enduring because God is a God of his word and he does not and he cannot change. It is about mercy bestowed upon people who deserve the opposite, living in sin, living in rebellion. And living in hostility toward their God. It is grace poured out upon people. Who do not deserve the riches of his blessing. Having lived for oneself. And not worshiping the God of creation and redemption. It is love given to people who did not love. And who even after receiving love. Who do not love well even now. Often professing one thing with their mouths. But actions betraying those alleged convictions behind. It is a covenant love filled in his son and fulfilled in the son and through his son's name alone. Note with me, not the mechanism of salvation as we read in Ephesians passage, but the motivation of salvation here from Paul, not how something is done, but why something is done in the following verses in Ephesians chapter two, when he says, but God, but God being rich in mercy, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ by grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. You can't even say it with one word. He's trying to convey how overflowing this love is when he says the immeasurable, unmeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace. You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Note how he's trying to convey to us the motivation, not only the mechanism, by indicating to us the immeasurable riches of his grace. This is why Paul repeats in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his love for us in this. While not that we were seeking God or running after God or wanting God while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us is how Paul summarizes it. But the key in this Psalm is that this love of the Lord that comes to us in Christ Jesus culminating upon the cross is the constant never ending, never quitting love in Christ Jesus. This is why Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He lists a bunch of things that could potentially can, and he concludes by saying, Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you believe that? Sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Would you agree? Uh, Sometimes. Weeks, months, years go by where you feel like you don't hear his voice. You don't feel his presence. You don't get to experience his goodness to us. And sometimes he seems very distant. We've prayed, yet the answers don't seem to come readily. And perhaps it's not just me. Maybe you feel the same at times like that. And certainly the last couple years as Individuals, as family, as an institution, there are many occasions where it felt like oftentimes the blessings of the Lord seem far away. It's a silly example, but perhaps I can explain it this way. And what I think the psalmist and and, and the writer Paul is trying to say, um, before I got married and when I didn't have children, I was more of an expert in child rearing. I was theoretically perfect. I've thought about it, I would criticize those individuals who would do contrary to what I know is the right thing to do in terms of raising children. One such example, and it's a silly example that many of you have heard and perhaps you could identify with, is this silly backpack that parents have for their children, especially sons. You know what I'm talking about? You wear the backpack, the kid loves it, and there's a string in the back, and you walk your child like you walk your pet, and you take him anywhere you go. As a single person or newly married without kids, that seemed silly. And it felt very demeaning to the child until I had a son. Um, My son's here, so I want to be careful how I say this. This is to say many kids are this way. Uh, We had a daughter first who seemed to be able to sit in one place quite well. But the boy, after he started walking, independence meant freedom. And he never walked. It was always running. And all was fine living in your home until we... We're given the opportunity because of the generosity of our parents to go on a cruise for the first time. I don't know if you know this, but boats have edges. And when you fall off the edges, you go far. And recovery is very difficult. And all I kept dreaming about leading up to that trip was my son falling over the edge. And so my wife and I did the unthinkable. We bought the backpack. And having bought the backpack, we put it on him. He loved it. He put his cars in there, trains in there. And he was walking around everywhere. And as we're embarking, you realize that there are lots of people there. We're holding onto the rope tight, which is about 10 feet long. And there are occasions when he's running away, he turns around to see us. And he sees us. He smiles. And he keeps roaming around. But at times when he turns around, there are people in between. So as he turned, he couldn't see us. And you can see the panic-stricken look as he tries to run back to his parents and find him there, smiles, and then starts roaming again. Sometimes people in between, sometimes without any people, where he's able to sometimes see us and not see us. Now, there are occasions when he wasn't able to see his parents who are watching him carefully. But there was never a moment where he was detached From their his parents' watchful eyes. Never. And I think that's an appropriate analogy for us to understand what the Lord is saying in Psalm 121. Whether by day or by night, he is watching over us is what the scripture teaches us. And so despite the fact that you and I lacking faith and spiritual eyes to see our Lord evidently before us each and every single day, there has never been a moment for those who are in Christ Jesus where your Lord has been apart from you. This is why Paul is able to say with confidence, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one and nothing. His steadfast love for you in Christ Jesus endures forever to go back to even the analogy of the language he spoke of, the unsatisfied longing, the regret, the sadness, the melancholy that we refer to as simply Han is ultimately overturned. And what was being sought for fulfilled in the unrelenting love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that love is with you who are in Christ Jesus No matter what you see or don't see, no matter what you feel or don't feel, the Lord does not change and cannot change. For Jesus Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, the scripture promises. This is why the psalmist wants us to hear this, this unending refrain, when he says, His steadfast love for you endures forever, and therefore God is good. Knowing that God's steadfast love never ends, nor quits, the psalmist seems to think that there is only one response possible. And he repeats it for us in verses 1 through 3 and 26 that we read this morning. Listen and see if you can hear the repetition. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. 26. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Did you hear the repetition? as we're told the reason why his steadfast love endures forever, he tells us the one thing we ought to do. And the one thing we ought to respond with is simply give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Four times he repeats this. Giving thanks does not fully express the meaning of the great hallelujah here because here Psalm 136 belongs to a series of Psalms that talk about praising the Lord. And the implication here is that praising the Lord and worshiping the Lord is impossible part from the presence and overflowing of thanks from his people. And we recognize that this is easier said than done. Our hearts are prone to wander, and our eyes fixate on what is missing rather than what is present, what we can touch rather than what we understand to be true from the word. But the psalmist simply says, Give thanks, full stop. Give thanks. It does not say, Give thanks in perfect circumstances, it does not say, Give thanks in abundant provisions. It doesn't say give thanks when there is security for your future. It doesn't say give thanks when success is around the corner and everything looks great. It doesn't say give thanks when your grades are good, your kids are succeeding, and they go to finest schools and have the finest jobs it is not what the psalmist says. He simply says, give thanks for God's steadfast love for you endures forever. For friends, even non-Christians give thanks when they are healthy, when they are loved, and when they are successful. What makes Christianity so unique is that the spiritual and hidden realities are made visible and real. In fact, more real to us, even if no one is able to understand We give thanks not only when things go well, visibly and tangibly, but we give thanks even when circumstances do not seem right. And this is not the way it's supposed to be. And we seem to be far away from the home promised, where milk and honey overflow. We give thanks in all circumstances because of the Lord's constant love for us shown, exercised and demonstrated for us in Christ Jesus. Our Lord. The only qualifier here in giving thanks is that we give thanks to the Lord. It's not thanking us. It's not thanking our spouses, as wonderful as they may be. Not thanking our kids or anything else that perhaps we may find great joy and satisfaction in. The only qualifier is give thanks to the Lord. For his steadfast love for you endures forever, cannot change, never stops flowing. This is why the Apostle Paul echoes this sentiment. I know you read this. I know I read this. But I often forget when he says in Ephesians 5.20, give thanks always. Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, 6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God with thanksgiving. Colossians 1, 3, 3, 17 says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the father through him. One famous passage that you know well, 1 Thessalonians five sixteen through 18, where he says, rejoice always. We fail in that often. Pray without ceasing. I know we fail in that often. But he goes on to say, give thanks in all circumstances. Not give thanks in particular circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. For you. Friends, are you thankful? Are you thankful for the year that's behind us? Are you look for, are looking forward with thankfulness to the year to come? Not because the circumstances look that much better, but simply because the Lord's demonstrated love in Christ Jesus will not change. And that even if everything changes, his constant love for you cannot and does not change. And he furiously loves you in such a way that this new year we recognize will be the year of our Lord. Because he's there with us. And thus we give thanks. For he has been good to us. And his steadfast love endures forever. This has been the sentiment of many believers in centuries past. Heidegger Catechism, which was written five centuries ago, has one particular section where it talks about God's creation and providence. And the question 28 asks this, how does the knowledge of God's creation, that is he created all things, and his providence, which is a theologically fancy word to say God superintends and oversees everything, that everything is under his control, how does his providence and the knowledge of that help us? And the answer he give, they give is simply this. We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future, we can have good confidence. We can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love, Romans 8, for all creatures are so completely in his hand That without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Because of God's superintending love for us, we can be patient in adversity because we know the promise of God that he will be among us, even in the midst of it. We are thankful in prosperity because you and I did not do anything. God has done it all. And for the future. We can have good confidence, not in our own abilities or in our willingness to do things, but in our faithful God and father, that no creature and no circumstance and no time can separate us from his love. You know why, right? Because God is good and his steadfast love for you in Christ Jesus endures forever and never quits. May this be real And experiential for you this week. May it sustain you. And bring you energy. As you serve in different capacities. Ultimately every single moment. May we learn to. By his spirit. To give thanks. Because the Lord has done it all. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Shall we? Father thank you. We confess that oftentimes we come before you with many of our needs and supplications, besieging you because you promised to hear us, and we delight in coming before you in prayer and bringing our supplications and needs to you. Lord, we often forget to thank you, for you have been so good to us. You indeed are good. And we are so grateful to you for the steadfast love you have not only demonstrated to us in history, but shown for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Remind us of your love, O oh Lord, for days are often dark. The providence of dark clouds overwhelm us at times. Many of us struggle with physical health issues. Many of us have uncertainties about our future. Many of us have questions about broken relationships and the trials and travails that are before us. Even in the midst of it, O Lord, would you come whisper to us and be near us? May we experience and see your powerful hand upon us and all the circumstances in our lives. Allow us to trust in you by your spirit. That our eyes may be open to see not only those things that we can touch, but to see the spiritual reality of your work among us. That we, our lips and our songs will lift up thanksgiving to you. Thank you for being so good to us. So good to New Life Church, being so good to our elders and pastors who serve you so faithfully. We ask for your manifold blessings to be upon them, O Lord. Protect them from harm. Grant them wisdom beyond their years and experience. Grant them steadfastness in their service to you. That all that this church and all the members therein and all those who are inquiring about you, all that we seek to do together may bring glory and honor to you. May our church be marked by thanksgiving, for you have constantly been good to us. For we pray these things in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Joel Kim of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.